The History of Literature podcast is a member of the Podglomerate Network and Lit Hub Radio. Hello. It's the greatest epic story in Indian literature and possibly in the history of the world. Written over the span of 800 years, from 400 BC to 400 AD, the Mahabharata tells the riveting tale of disputed kingship and warring families. But just as the action-packed narrative reaches its climactic peak, the story pauses to deliver perhaps the greatest summary of philosophy and religion ever written. The resulting passage, a text within a text known as the Bhagavad Gita, has proved inspirational to hundreds of millions of religious seekers, with philosophers from Henry David Thoreau to Mahatma Gandhi expressing their admiration for the dialogue between the reluctant warrior Arjuna and the driver of his chariot, Krishna who turns out to be the incarnation of God. How does this philosophical treatise fit in such a fast-paced story? What lessons does it have for those inside or outside the Hindu tradition? And how did a 2,000-year-old argument that a warrior should fulfill his duty on the battlefield end up inspiring some of the most famous advocates of nonviolence in the 19th and 20th centuries? I remembered the line from the Hindu scripture, the Bhagavad Gita, Now I am become death, the destroyer of worlds. The Bhagavad Gita, today on the History of Literature. Okay, so let's start by orienting ourselves. Take a look at where we are in our history of literature, the journey that we're taking together. We're still in India's heroic age. This will be the last episode that we spend here. And we'll be looking at the Mahabharata, which is a long epic poem. And by long, I mean it's eight times as long as the Odyssey and the Iliad put together. It had an enormous impact on Indian literature and Indian culture. Essentially, it's a story of two warring families, both of them making a claim to a kingdom. What happened was a king had an eldest son who was blind, who didn't inherit the kingdom because he was blind. So the kingdom passed to the next eldest son who was still a kid, so he was too young. In the meantime, the blind older brother uh, shared power with the son who was too young. And that blind older brother then gave the kingdom to his son, and the dispute was born. So far, when I hear that, I'm not really taking a side. I'm not, <laughs> and frankly, I'm not all that interested. I'm glad we don't have a succession through uh, birth order and, and that kind of thing. We've moved on. So is India. On the other hand, in order to immerse ourselves in the narrative, we have to understand that the Pandavas, which is the, the side that descends from the younger son, turn out to be the good guys. Part of this is because the Kauravas, the older son's uh, descendants, turn out to be corrupt and deceitful. They cheat the Pandavas with a crooked dice game, and they generally go back on their word, their bargain. So here we are with our epic story, the Pandavas family, the good guys, and they have a great hero who's called Arjuna. He's the mightiest of warriors. He's the the sort of warrior who practices shooting his... uh, bow and arrow in the dark. He's always the bravest, most decisive, and best warrior. But as we'll see, 
there's a tradition in, in northern India that the warriors are not wrathful as they as they were as Achilles was when we took a look at the Iliad. They exercise some restraint. That's part of being a strong leader. Tamil poetry, which is written in a near geographic location at the same time, is different. Those heroes are more like Greek heroes. They're heroes and lovers. They're brave, courageous. Anger is a worthy flaw for a hero like that. In northern India, it's a little bit different. Uh, In Tamil poetry or in the Greek epic tradition, hesitation would be unheroic. Here, it's more of a sign of, of thoughtfulness, of wisdom, of spiritual completeness. We'll get to that in a minute. So there's a great story about what a, about what a uh, solid warrior Arjuna is. Um, story that he was, he was asked to prove how good he was at archery by shooting a bird on the tree. And a bird that was sitting on a tree. And the king said, I want you to, to shoot that bird that's on the branch. Do you see that branch? And Arjuna said, no. And the king said, what? I thought you must have great vision to be a great archer. Do you see the tree that the bird is sitting on? And Arjuna said, no, I, I see no tree. And the, the, the leader says, well, how can you be such a, a magnificent archer if you can't even see the tree? And he said, sir, all I see is the bird. It's a great story. It reminds me of uh, something that happened in my own life when I was playing basketball. I had a teammate who was excellent, a fantastic player. He was also a player who was put under a lot of pressure by his parents who were would attend the games and, and shout. We were playing one game. The crowd was was full. The gymnasium was packed. The bleachers were full. Standing room only. A lot of shouting. The band was playing. Things were exciting. I remember saying to my friend, can you believe how loud this crowd is? And he looked at me and he said, the only thing I hear are two voices, my mother and my father, and I don't hear anything else. I was floored. It's the kind of focus in that sense it's probably sort of a negative focus that showed what kind of strain he was under, the kind of pain that he lived with. In this case, in Arjuna's case, that kind of focus, just seeing the bird, not seeing the tree, not even seeing the branch that the bird is sitting on, just seeing the target, just being able to focus, gives us a sense, I think, of the kind of spiritual warrior that we're talking about here. So now... We see this even more when we get deep into the epic. By now, we know dozens of characters. We see all the warriors and their families. We see their teachers, all these cousins and their followers. And they're all lined up, ready for action. They're assembled on the eve of the great battle. This is the culmination of the Mahabharata. They're poised. The air is thick with anticipation. And then something astonishing happens astonishing in a couple of senses. It's astonishing in the narrative that this moment occurs, and it's also astonishing, I think, in the history of literature that we would see an epic as grand as the Mahabharata interrupted by what happens next. So what happens next is Arjuna goes out 
He takes his, the driver of his chariot and they go out for a ride. And he goes in the middle of these two armies. He knows that the, the next day, the next morning, he's going to lead his side into battle. He's the leader, remember. He's the strongest, the bravest. He's the warrior that will avenge the injustice, that will return the kingdom to the family that deserves it the most. It will all happen the next day. And then Arjuna looks and he thinks about the killing that's going to occur, the bloodshed, the fact that these are cousins who will be fighting against cousins. And the whole family feud washes over him, the waste of energy, the waste of life. And he says to the driver of his chariot, I can't do it. What's the point? How can I become a murderer of my cousins? How is that the just thing to do? How is that the right thing to do? How is that appropriate or good to lead a battle, to lead one family against its own family in this slaughter? How can it be consistent with my spiritual faith? How can this be what God wants me to do? And his driver essentially says, it is consistent. It's the path for you. It's your destiny and you should fulfill it. And he sets forward arguments for why it is that action and not inaction is the proper choice and a choice that's consistent with Arjuna's faith. Arjuna is not persuaded. He asks, how can I know that this is the way? How do I know that this is right? How do I know that this is what God wants? And his driver says, because I am God. Hey, grown-ups! The Cat in the Hat cast is a new podcast from Wondery, perfect for the whole family. Join the Cat in the Hat and your favorite Dr. Seuss characters as they get whisked away on a new adventure every week. Fish dreams of creating his very own polite and quiet podcast. That is, until he gets a surprise visit to his Fishbowl podcast studio from the Cat in the Hat himself. And it becomes very clear that the cat has other plans for the podcast, and those plans are the opposite of quiet. The cat may be disruptive, but it turns out he's also a great help to get fish out of all kinds of predicaments. Bursting with music, silliness, and rhymes, the Cat in the Hat cast encourages us all to find fun that is funny in every episode. Sing along to new favorite songs, try your luck at titanic tongue twisters, have some fun with wondrous wordplay, and most importantly, Bring your family along for all of the adventures in the Cat in the Hat cast. Follow the Cat in the Hat cast on the Wondery app or wherever you get your podcasts. You can listen to the Cat in the Hat cast ad-free right now by joining Wondery Plus in the Wondery app or Wondery Kids Plus in Apple Podcasts. It's a great dialogue. Let's take a look at the arguments that Krishna makes in order to persuade Arjuna that what he really should be doing, that his destiny is to fight on the battlefield. One of the ways of approaching this, these arguments, this religion, this philosophical tradition, is to take a look at Aldous Huxley, a 20th century author who developed something called the perennial philosophy. 
a fascinating book. He says that the same philosophy occurs in every age and every civilization. It has three main features. We certainly do see this in the Bhagavad Gita. The first feature is that the world changes on its surface, but that there's an infinite changeless reality that is beneath or beyond the reality that we see and experience. The second feature is that this deeper reality lies within human beings. It's part of our true self or our core. We can access it. And the third feature is that the purpose of life is to discover this reality and experience it, and that to do this is to realize God while here on earth. Now, plenty of philosophers have looked at the Bhagavad Gita, both in its original language, Sanskrit, and its translated versions. It really washed over Europe and America in a big wave the end of the 18th century and throughout the 19th century. Both Gandhi and Thoreau cited it as a strong example. Thoreau took it with him to Walden Pond. He contemplated its ideas. And both Gandhi and Thoreau wound up uh, with, as we know, passionate advocates for civil disobedience, for nonviolence. That's a, a key question for us. How can this book, this call to action, square with that? How can these thinkers have used it as the basis for their nonviolent approach? That's question number one for us. And let's just admire its role. Let's take a second to just admire its role. We have a long epic story, a tale of action, the feats of bravery, the heroes, and then we have this philosophical discussion. It's as good as anything in Plato or Aristotle. Anything that we see where it stands alone, any standalone philosophical work you can think of, and here it is embedded within this action tale. I'm not sure there's anything else quite like it. It poses a question for all leaders. How can you send troops into battle? How and when? When is it ever appropriate to do that? The question we often wish our leaders would ask more. The ones who wrestle with it often don't earn our admiration for doing so. They appear weak, at least to some portion of the population. Some people would like pacifism, would prefer that. If you think of it this way, pacifism is somewhat easy, spiritually or morally. You declare you're against all wars. You won't fight. Your conscience will be clear. That's an easy position to take. But then we have Nazis. We fight them. Is that appropriate? And once you make that decision, then, then you need to figure out all the things in the middle. You're willing to be pacifist most of the time, but make an exception for Nazis. There might be other places where you should make an exception too. How about fighting in self-defense? Your country is attacked. Is it appropriate then? You could lose your way of life. All the people you've lived with all the people you've loved, all the people you know, be forced into terrible subjugation by an invading army. Surely most of us would choose fighting, even at the expense of pacifism, even if it led to violent action. 
Where else on the scale would you be? How about Vietnam? What position do you take there? What compels you to fight there? Anti-communism? Patriotism? How about fighting to prevent genocide? Should we send troops there? There's a whole scale of tough decisions to be made. And here, in a text more than 2,000 years old, we see a leader wrestling with these issues. It's fascinating. And what about the rest of us? Those of us who aren't leaders of nations, who don't have to decide when to send troops into battle. What about those of us who are foot soldiers, not presidents or generals? That's the beauty. This book is for us, too. I had my own question to face when I was in college. I was of draft age, but there wasn't a draft. The Gulf War began, the first Gulf War. And I had to ask these questions, questions I had never asked before. If there was a draft, would I go? Why? Because I believed in my country? Because it was my duty? Because my ancestors had fought for me and I owed it to them? Was it because I believed in the war itself? How about for the experience? Maybe I owed it to myself as a human being. Rather than have others fight for me, I needed to experience it for myself. To know what it's like to be afraid of being killed or to be the one pulling the trigger? How could I tell myself that the war is for other people to fight and support the war? Or should I protest the war? What was the right thing to do? Hold that thought. I'll return to those questions. Let me just say now the Bhagavad Gita is a way of Addressing those questions, it's one of the things I admire about it. The way it enables all of us to take a look at it, and not just war. Any kind of action. Any kind of moral dilemma. Where we're looking at what's obligated of us. What we feel compelled to do. The great thing about the Bhagavad Gita is it recognizes that some of the other philosophical traditions, the religious traditions and the Hindu tradition, pose these questions. This is the practical answer. This is the pragmatism that, that results. Christianity has something similar with suicide. That's the story I've always heard anyway. That there was in early Christianity, when they were developing the doctrines and the practices, that they had this this issue with people who would confess their sins, purify their souls, and then commit suicide because they thought that was their best chance of getting into heaven. So they had to, to clarify the issue that suicide was not condoned. You could see you could see a religion like Hinduism with the same issue. Not the same issue. Facing a, a similar dilemma. Renounce and enjoy. So we talked about last time, but what does that mean? Where's the practicality in that? How do people live? How do they eat? How would they protect themselves? How would they propagate? How would they right wrongs if everyone was renouncing? The answer is more complicated. The word renounce is more complicated. So here's the first argument that Krishna makes to Arjuna. Bodies are ephemeral. 
The souls are what matter. If you kill, you're just releasing the souls. Souls are free to merge with God or be reborn, whatever their destiny is for that soul. But you're not responsible, Arjuna. It's their karma that's responsible. And your dharma, now the word dharma means a bunch of different things. It means God, means truth, means duty. It's like a combination of all those things. Your dharma is to fight for truth and good, and you must do it. Arjuna isn't persuaded by that argument. He says, how can this be good? How can killing be good? How can I know that killing is good? How is it reconciled with doing what we know is right? Fascinating question, because as we know, Gandhi apparently came out on the other side. He said the Bhagavad Gita, this isn't justifying war. Krishna goes on to tell Arjuna there on the battlefield as they pause on the eve of the battle. Krishna can stop time. That's one of the it's one of the benefits when you need to have a long philosophical discussion on the eve of a battle. Helps to have one of your speakers with the ability to freeze time, give you plenty of space to discuss what you need. Krishna says, there are three ways to achieving a dissolution of the soul. Through renunciation of desires, through knowledge or meditation, and through selfless service. The truly divine human doesn't merely renounce all worldly possessions or simply stop acting in the world. Stopping acting, ceasing action, is itself a kind of action. Krishna points out, he says the truly divine human finds peace in contemplating action in the highest service to God. I want to give you a flavor of this dialogue, so I'm going to read now from chapter 5 of the Bhagavad Gita. Arjuna says, O Krishna, you have recommended both the path of selfless action and sannyasa, the path of renunciation of action. Tell me definitely which is better. Krishna, both renunciation of action and the selfless performance of action lead to the supreme goal, but the path of action is better than renunciation. Those who have attained perfect renunciation are free from any sense of duality. They are unaffected by likes and dislikes, Arjuna, and are free from the bondage of self-will. The immature think that knowledge and action are different, but the wise see them as the same. The person who is established in one path will attain the rewards of both. The goal of knowledge and the goal of service are the same. Those who fail to see this are blind. Later in the chapter, it goes on, Krishna goes on and says, Pleasures conceived in the world of the senses have a beginning and an end and give birth to misery, Arjuna. The wise do not look for happiness in them, but those who overcome the impulses of lust and anger which arise in the body are made whole and live in joy. They find their joy, their rest, and their light completely within themselves. United with the Lord, they attain nirvana in Brahman. Closing their eyes, steadying their breathing, and focusing their attention on the center of spiritual consciousness, the wise master their senses, mind, and intellect through meditation. Self-realization is their only goal. 
freed from selfish desire, fear, and anger, they live in freedom always. Knowing me as the friend of all creatures, the Lord of the universe, the end of all offerings and all spiritual disciplines, they attain eternal peace. It's a great passage. There are a lot of great passages in here. This one I like because it starts to get at that question. Puts in plain language the dilemma and a way of resolving the dilemma. If we apply this to my own situation, when I was deciding what to do during the Gulf War, you could see how the key question it would have forced me to ask would be why I was signing up. Was this selfless service? If my motivation was because I thought it would benefit me, because I thought I would look good in the uniform, I could earn glory for myself, I could achieve a kind of self-actualization, all those motives would be would go into the question of what I should do. Now, Arjuna asks for evidence of Krishna's divine powers. Here's a fascinating passage. Very famous. Krishna. Krishna. It's a big reveal. All the arguments are weighing upon Arjuna, and he, he eventually asks Krishna to show himself as God. Now, a lot of times, poems set forth a project like this, find it hard to rise to the occasion. Not just poems talking about God, but anything. If you've ever read a novel where they talk about some very funny person, and then the person speaks, well, the person had better be funny, right? Or if it's a novel about a great poet, and they show you the poems, the novelist had better be very confident that he or she can come up with the goods, or the character won't be believable. So here's a case where Arjuna is asking Krishna to demonstrate himself, and the prose or I'm sorry, the poetry rises to the occasion with the cosmic vision. This is from Book 11. Arjuna begins and says, Out of compassion you have taught me the supreme mystery of the self. Through your words my delusion is gone. You have explained the origin and end of every creature, O lotus-eyed one, and told me of your own supreme, limitless existence. Just as you have described your infinite glory, O Lord, now I long to see it. I want to see you as the supreme ruler of creation. O Lord, master of yoga, if you think me strong enough to behold it, show me your immortal self. And Krishna responds, Behold, Arjuna, a million divine forms with an infinite variety of color and shape. Behold the gods of the natural world and many more wonders never revealed before. Behold the entire cosmos, turning within my body and the other things you desire to see. But these things cannot be seen with your physical eyes. Therefore, I give you spiritual vision to perceive my majestic power. The poem's narrator then says, Having spoken these words, Krishna, the master of yoga, revealed to Arjuna his most exalted lordly form. He appeared with an infinite number of faces ornamented by heavenly jewels, displaying unending miracles and the countless weapons of his power. 
clothed in celestial garments and covered with garlands, sweet-smelling with heavenly fragrances, he showed himself as the infinite Lord, the source of all wonders, whose face is everywhere. If a thousand suns were to rise in the heavens at the same time, the blaze of their light would resemble the splendor of that supreme spirit. There, within the body of the God of gods, Arjuna saw all the manifold forms of the universe united as one. Filled with amazement, his hair standing on end in ecstasy, he bowed before the Lord with joined palms and spoke these words. O Lord, I see within your body all the gods and every kind of living creature. I see Brahma, the creator, seated on a lotus. I see the ancient sages and the celestial serpents. I see infinite mouths and arms, stomachs and eyes, and you are embodied in every form. I see you everywhere, without beginning, middle, or end. You are the Lord of all creation, and the cosmos is your body. You are the supreme, changeless reality, the one thing to be known. You are the refuge of all creation, the immortal spirit, the eternal guardian of eternal dharma. You are without beginning, middle, or end. You touch everything with your infinite power. The sun and moon are your eyes, and your mouth is fire. Your radiance warms the cosmos. O Lord, your presence fills the heavens and the earth and reaches in every direction. I see the three worlds trembling before this vision of your wonderful and terrible form. You lap the worlds into your burning mouths and swallow them. Filled with your terrible radiance, O Vishnu, the whole of creation bursts into flames. Tell me who you are, O Lord of terrible form. I bow before you. Have mercy. I want to know who you are, you who existed before all creation. Your nature and workings confound me. And Krishna says, I am time, the destroyer of all. I have come to consume the world. Even without your participation, all the warriors gathered here will die. Therefore arise, Arjuna, conquer your enemies and enjoy the glory of sovereignty. I have already slain all these warriors. You will only be my instrument. Bhishma, Drona, Jayadratha, Karna, and many others are already slain. Kill those whom I have killed. Do not hesitate. Fight in this battle, and you will conquer your enemies. Having heard these words, Arjuna trembled in fear. With joined palms, he bowed before Krishna and addressed him, stammering, O Krishna, it is right that the world delights and rejoices in your praise, that all the saints and sages bow down to you, and all evil flees before you to the far corners of the universe. How could they not worship you, O Lord? You are the eternal spirit who existed before Brahma, the creator, and who will never cease to be. Lord of the gods, you are the abode of the universe. Changeless, you are what is and what is not, and beyond the duality of existence and non-existence. You are the first among the gods, the timeless spirit, the resting place of all beings. You are the knower and the thing which is known. You are the final home, with your infinite form, you pervade the cosmos. Now, I've excerpted somewhat in reading that, and I should credit the translator. It's Eknath Eswaran. Once again, I think we've used him before. It's a beautiful translation. It's a beautiful verse. Quite powerful and compelling. 
I would say. The Mahabharata is not something that everyone necessarily has to read in its entirety, but the Bhagavad Gita is not that long, and it is definitely worth the read. It's worth the read. It's worth also reading the, the commentary in this edition. There's another edition of it uh, by Stephen Mitchell, another fine translation. Stephen Mitchell's another favorite of ours. It's a dramatic, powerful moment when Krishna reveals himself to Arjuna. So dramatic. Robert Oppenheimer quoted it. I played a little excerpt of this at the beginning of the episode. I'm going to play a little bit longer of one now. He quoted it when he described what it felt like to witness the first nuclear blast. Imagine being a scientist, wondering if that was your dharma, if that's what you were put on this planet to do, to create this kind of weapon of mass destruction, could be used in so many ways to do so much harm, could be used to destroy the planet in ways that had not been contemplated before, to know that you had a strong role in that, and then to see the first tests. There's one quote where the only thing he said at the time is they watched this astonishing blast in the sky that he turned to his brother and said, it worked. But here we hear something else that Robert Heimer, that, sorry, that Robert Oppenheimer was thinking when he first saw those awful, awe-inspiring, astonishing fruits of the work that he did on the first atomic weaponry. We knew the world would not be the same. Few people laughed. Few people cried. Most people were silent. I remembered the line from the Hindu scripture, the Bhagavad Gita. Vishnu is trying to persuade the prince that he should do his duty. And to impress him, takes on his multi-armed form and says, Now I am become death the destroyer of worlds. I suppose we all thought that one way or another. That was recorded in the 60s and you can almost feel the, the memory of it. You can hear it in his voice. But it's almost too much for him. And the sight of Krishna was, was too much for Arjuna. He begs him to return to his earthly form. Krishna goes on to tell Arjuna that his duty is to fight for good against evil, that that will fulfill his dharma, the deepest form of selfless service. Arjuna finally agrees, and our interlude is over. That's the end of the Bhagavad Gita. The Mahabharata continues with its epic battles. So I think we can see now where Gandhi, how he reconciles this. 
how he believes that the Bhagavad Gita, even though it's a call to war, even though it's it's talking Arjuna into his his battle, telling him that that's what he needs to do. You can see how Gandhi uses the underlying principles and philosophy as support for his own view of nonviolence. What he said was, is that you just need to base your life sincerely and systematically on the Gita and see if it's compatible with killing or even hurting others. He makes the same point about the Sermon on the Mount. Take it seriously. Take the words and teachings seriously and see where it gets you. He points out the heart of the Gita's message is to see God in all creatures. Thoreau called this stupendous, cosmogonal. Said that it made Western religions look silly, small. Arjuna's dharma was to fight for good against evil. Gandhi's dharma was to peacefully, without bloodshed, end exploitation, colonial rule. What about me? What about my decision? What to do? It would depend on the reasons. Would I be going to kill Arabs? It's a bad reason. It's for a cause. It's out of a sense of duty. It might be fine. Selfless service might be worth doing. I'm offering this as a deep form of selfless service, detached from my own cravings and temptations. I can remember during that time, protesters had a similar problem. We were all, we were the generation after Vietnam. We were too young to remember Vietnam, but we lived in its shadow. The adults around us had all done one thing or another for Vietnam. They had gone to fight, or they had protested, or they had evaded the draft, or they found some middle ground, signed up to work on an aircraft carrier in order to avoid being a Marine. Everyone has to make decisions. During that first Gulf War, You could see people who were protesting almost out of a sense of duty. Almost in a way that people who signed up for the military felt a sense of duty. In either case, they had deep questions to wrestle with. Questions that are all assisted by the ideas in the Bhagavad Gita. It's a fascinating book. Reminds me of the book of Job in the the way that it recognizes its own traditions, weaknesses, the actual struggles that a religious or philosophical doctrine forces upon us. It offers us answers. More importantly, it asks the right questions. Whether this book is the word of God, or if it's just the words of some very, very powerful thinkers putting their ideas of God into words, either way, the Gita is an achievement to celebrate. It's literature at its finest.
Okay, that's it for this episode of the History of Literature. Oh, I've enjoyed our time in India. Took longer than I thought, but then again, anyone who's ever been to India knows that that's just what happens. But now it's time to move along. Our journey will take us to the Roman Empire next, where we'll find out what the poets there have been up to. Sneak preview. I like the cranky poets the best. They are the most modern and the most fun. We might get an explicit rating for some of the episodes that are coming up. A shocking development for the history of literature. We also have some more guests lined up. I hope you listened to the last episode on debut novels with my special guest, the president of the Literature Supporters Club, El Presidente himself, the capo. Hoping to have him back on soon for another another one of our literary drafts. If you have an idea for an upcoming draft, we'd be happy to hear it. Just shoot me an email at jackwilsonauthor at gmail.com. That's J-A-C-K-E, wilsonauthor at gmail.com. Or leave a comment at jackwilson.com. We have some other guests. We'll be talking to Ronica Dar soon. She's the author of the wonderful novel Bijou Roy. We'll be talking about books to lower your blood pressure. Oh boy, do I ever need that one. Let's sell some more fish. You can find me and follow me at jackwilson.com, the website, or my Twitter handle at writerjack. And you can always leave your feedback with a comment. Send me an email. Nice rating on iTunes or a positive review would be as always, much appreciated. As is any kind of feedback, really. I got some very nice emails the other day, and I was smiling for hours. Spread the love. Maybe that's your dharma. I hope it is, and I hope it's mine too. That's it for now. I'm Jack Wilson. Thanks, as always, for listening, and we'll see you next time. <laughs>